0: to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello everybody, this is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor in chief of the New Books Network. And as you may know, the network is run by volunteers. There are about a hundred of us, but we do have expenses. So we'd like to ask you to contribute a little something if you can. If you enjoy the programming we produce, then we hope that you will take a moment to go to any New Books Network page and hit the button that says Donate to NBN. And whether you contribute or not, we'd like to thank you for listening to the network. Thank you for downloading this episode of New Books in Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. For each episode of the podcast, we choose an interesting new book that takes a deeper look at some area of world sport, and we talk with the author. This week's guest is Jeremy DeRue, who is a professor in the Washington College of Law at American University. Jeremy is an expert in sports law. He regularly contributes to both scholarly journals and media sites, and as an attorney, he works in a variety of capacities at the intersection of law and sport. A good part of Jeremy's academic and professional work over the last decade has been in the area of equal coaching opportunity in the National Football League, and in particular the establishment and implementation of the Rooney Rule which requires NFL teams to interview at least one minority candidate for head coaching vacancies. Jeremy presents the story of black players and coaches in the NFL and the process that led to the Rooney Rule in his book, Advancing the Ball, Race, Reformation, and the Quest for Equal Coaching Opportunity in the NFL, published by Oxford University Press in 2011. This is an engaging book that addresses institutional racism in American sport and reveals the hard work that has gone into undoing the obstacles to equal opportunity in coaching and sports management. And as Jeremy explains in our interview, this is work that is still in progress. Here's my conversation with Jeremy Drew. This week's guest on New Books in Sports is Jeremy Drew. Jeremy, welcome to the podcast. Bruce, thank you very much for having me. I'm happy to uh, to be uh, joining you here. So Jeremy is on the line with us from Washington, D.C., where he teaches at uh, American University's Washington College of Law. But uh, last week he was in Indianapolis at the NFL Combine. And uh, for those listeners who might be unfamiliar, the NFL Combine is this, this big annual event at which the uh, prospective NFL players, so young men between 20, 22 years old who've been top players in college football, they go through a, a battery of tests and exercises to to show their athleticism. And, and Jeremy, I'll start and ask, what was a – I imagine there were a lot of lawyers at the Combine, but uh, what was a law professor and a, and a legal scholar doing at the Combine?
1: Yeah, so well, – <laughs> That's a good question. There there are a, f- a fair number of lawyers there. Most of those lawyers are, of course, acting as agents, doing what they can to build up their business. With respect to a law professor, fewer of them there, a couple, Bruce, but not many. Um, I was there because I uh, represent, along with uh, my co-counsel, Cyrus Mary, um, we represent the Fritz Pollard Alliance. And the Fritz Pollard Alliance is the organization of minority coaches and front office personnel and scouts in the National Football League, and every year on the first Friday of the combine, the Fitzpatrick Pollard Alliance, known as the FPA, holds a meeting and award ceremony. And so, I flew out to Indianapolis uh, for that meeting.
0: And I'll ask you, Jeremy. So, what uh, what led you into sports law, and in particular, in your research into uh, professional and college football?
1: Um, I, I kind of I wasn't led into it so much as that I just kind of fell into it. I um, At heart, I'm a civil rights lawyer, and I was um, switching law firms early in my career a few years after I graduated, and I joined a small employment discrimination law firm in Washington, D.C., and when I got there, the lead partner said, Listen, we're glad to have you, um, but I got to tell you, I've got a matter that I really need some help on, so in addition to the things that we talked about you doing with me, I'm going to need you to work on this matter, and that matter ended up – being um, uh, working with some NFL coaches who were concerned about opportunities to be head coaches in the league. The concern was that um, their growth was essentially stunted and there was a bit of a glass ceiling when you got to um, uh, uh, offensive or defensive coordinator, if, if you got that far. And so I said, sure, I've always enjoyed sports and I was a civil rights lawyer. So uh, the marriage of those two things, civil rights questions and sports, seemed really exciting to me. And so I said, sure, I'd be happy to work on this matter. Um, and that matter turned into um, the founding of this organization, the Fritz Pollard Alliance, which I've mentioned, um, and then turned into the creation of the Rooney Rule in the National Football League, which is the rule that says if you're looking for a head coach or a general manager, you must interview at least one person of color, so that's how I got into sports through the civil rights side, um, the employment discrimination side, um, and since then, I've, uh, while in practice, I've built up my clientele a fair bit, and then went into teaching and as a professor uh, and a scholar, I've written largely about and taught largely about this intersection of uh, what I call sport and society, where you've got sport and you've got issues of race and gender and disability and such
0: so i want to follow up on that a bit in terms of your background with football and as you said you you more fell into uh working on football and law rather than seeking seeking that out and and to offer a contrast so my my own background with football is basically i was raised in football my dad played football he coached he was a football referee we'd skip out of church early on sunday to go watch the games and but in your case i know that uh your your father Came to the U.S. from Nigeria as an international student, and uh, so thinking of your background as the son of someone who encountered American football as as a foreign student, how has that shaped your perspective of the place of football in American
1: culture? That's a that's a question I've never been asked, Bruce, and it's a great question. Um, I think generally, my father's perspective, it, just very briefly, it's you know, it's a bit off. Uh, do the left field a bit. But my dad um, came here. Nobody in his family really ever left their village in eastern Nigeria. Um, and he was invited. He got this letter saying, please come to Lagos, Nigeria, then the capital to take a test. After he finished high school, he was teaching in his village and he went and um, uh, he took the test, went back to his village. And a year later, he got a letter saying, you've been admitted to the Pennsylvania State University. And his parents packed him off and sent him off you know to Penn State, where he said the first winter almost killed him um and uh and uh but there he was, and so he's always been somebody who's been open to new experiences and um Of course, you know you got to Penn State, this was the heyday of Penn State football, and Joe Paterno was in his early years, um some of his most successful years though, and so my dad fell in love with American football there. Uh, at penn state and he carried that forward he also is a huge hockey fan hockey was the first professional sport i went to i grew up in washington dc area and he used to take me to capitals games when they he used to, he played out in the capitol center in landover maryland um, and here was this nigerian immigrant with his two little boys uh, <laughs> at, a, <laughs> at a washington capitals game in the late 70s i think it was probably an interesting sight for others to see but for my dad hey, if there's something interesting, he will try it. And that's what got him into these American sports and um, really, you know, set the foundation for my love of all sport. Uh, You know, I love sport around the globe. Um, Football happens to be where my work is primarily, although that's changing a bit. I'm branching out a bit with respect to other sports. Um, But I think his openness to sport really drove my um, openness and love uh, for the breadth of sport. Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm.
0: Well, Jeremy, let's turn to your book, and uh, and at the start, we should set the background to this issue of coaching opportunity in the NFL. So, so in the early days of, of or the early decades of professional football in the U.S. in the early 20th century, there were black players, a few black players, and there was even one black coach in the early NFL. So, could you could you talk about that?
1: Sure. Yeah. So there were, as you point, as you I mean, you phrase it very well. A few black players, there weren't a lot, but there were some. And there was one black coach. And that black coach was Fritz Pollard, the namesake of the Fritz Pollard Alliance. And he was a player coach. Um, he played. He he took Brown University to the Rose Bowl in college. And he uh, left school uh, when he was done with school and, and went into what was then the American Professional Football Association, which became the National Football League. And he was with a team called the Akron Pros. And um, he began as a player and then became a coach player. Um and but it wasn't long it was not long lived, Bruce. Uh within uh a decade of him uh entering the league, all black folks in the league, coaches, players, everybody, they were all expurgated by a way of a um gentleman's agreement, it was called. Um and black folks didn't get back into the league until nineteen uh forty six. And from then until you know the the beginning of the movement that I describe in my book for equal coaching opportunity in the NFL. There was a slow progression of black people trying to get more of an opportunity to lead, be leaders in the National Football League. It began with black people trying to play the position of middle linebacker, which was known as a position largely for white players, um, known as a, a intelligence position, a leadership position, a managerial position. Quarterback, of course, is another one. Center is another one. Once we got some traction in those regards, coaching was kind of the final frontier. And I discuss in my book how um, the NFL worked with the Fritz Pollard Alliance and other entities to try to crack uh, the glass ceiling that was keeping uh, African-American assistant coaches, um, for the most part, out of head coaching roles.
0: Well, I want to ask about that. because So while black players were common on NFL rosters, and and you even by the 1980s you began to see uh black quarterbacks, black middle linebackers as you were mentioning. The coaching ranks remained largely white and uh, you do see some black position coaches in the 1980s, but the top positions on coaching staffs were still held by white coaches. And that changed with the hiring of Art Shell in 1989 by the Los Angeles Raiders and but really Shell's hiring was was an anomaly. This did not start a a trend. So, so what were the institutional barriers in the NFL that, that were still in place in the 1980s into the 1990s that kept black coaches out of the top jobs? Yeah.
1: So you're right. I mean, art shells hiring when it, when it happened, Bruce, people thought it would start a trend. Yeah. 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 I mean, it was a celebrated thing. And, Thought it really opened up the doors, and as you point out, it didn't. I think there were a couple of things that were um, uh, that were challenges um, in terms of African Americans attaining those head coaching positions after our child. there were a few. There was, excuse me, Herman Edwards and Ray Rhodes and Tony Dungy, who we'll probably talk about later because he plays a big role in this story. Um, but not a whole lot. And I think there were kind of two two substantial barriers. I think one. Is just kind of the old boys network, um, whether malicious or otherwise. That is to say that, you know, in many businesses, you tend to give opportunities to those, you know, the best and those, you know, the best tend to be the, tend to be those with whom you socialize and those with whom you socialize tend to be. Are, are often those who have similar characteristics, and so um, some of the African American coaches just weren't in the room often at the cocktail parties, at the social hours, to get to know the owners who ultimately made the decision. So I think just you know it's just not not having the ability to be a part of the community from which uh, head coaches were tapped was a piece of it, and the other piece I think is the is the more kind of concerning, disturbing piece, and that is I think that they remained at that time in the National Football League a sense that kind of pervaded our nation's history for much of of its history, and certainly its early history, that when it comes to athletics, African-Americans are, for the most part, a pretty um, substantial asset. But when it comes to leadership and management, maybe they just don't have that stuff, the necessities. Um, They don't have it. They know the ability to really lead, the um, intellectual strength to manage a large, you know, team, a large organization. Um, and I think that was a part of, of what challenged the National Football League. And it's interesting because some of the other major leagues in this country, Major League Baseball, uh, the NBA, um, were were well ahead of the NFL when it came to integration at the top posts, at the head coaching posts. Uh, NBA had its first head coach of color in 1966, I think, with Bill Russell. Major League Baseball 1977, or 1975, its first manager, Frank uh, Robinson, I believe. And as you pointed out, Artshell comes in 1989. And I think there was a sense that when you've got, you know, a, a baseball squad of 25 players, a basketball squad of 12 players, Um, relatively limited playbooks. That's one thing for a black individual to manage. When you have a 53 person roster with a playbook that is, you know, looks like a phone book, it's three inches thick and has a ton of different formations and sets and a bunch of different plays that come out of those formations and sets, maybe it would be more challenging, I think, in the thinking of some, um, for an African American to handle that job. So that's another. I think, substantial, uh, a systematic block, mind block, if you will, that tended to exist. Um, that resulted in us seeing more progress in the other leagues, um, than in the NFL through the eighties uh, and into the nineties. Yeah.
0: So you had mentioned earlier in talking about the, the old boys network of the, of the NFL. And you said, you know, whether or not it was, was malicious, uh, black coaches were excluded from that old boys network. And, um, I want to ask you: Did you did you find evidence of maliciousness <laughs> it within within the NFL, whether the ownership ranks or the management ranks?
1: Um, you know, there was some. I mean, you, you know, I mean, there there are stories of of uh, individuals who you know kind of had kind of some racist uh, uh, presumptions um that that were problematic when it came to trying to you know, be more of a progressive league um but you know to the extent that those views were held i didn't come across that many of them articulated clearly um some you could kind of infer but often it was the case bruce that you just had you know kind of folks setting their ways as to how they might hire a coach and so mm-hmm. Um, an example I've got for you um, that's in my book is John Wooten is the chairman of the Fritz Pollard Alliance. He played for the Cleveland Browns in the fifties and sixties, and he was one of the first senior uh, front office executives of color in the National Football League. Um, he was a, with a number of teams um, during his career: the Eagles, the Cowboys, the Ravens. Uh, but when he was when he was with the Cowboys, he was in their front office, and he. <clears throat> He, uh, he had begun kind of this work in terms of trying to increase opportunity for coaches in the front office, execs of color, um, even back then. And he used to fly to meetings here and there. And Tech Shram was then running things with the Cowboys, if you remember mm-hmm. Shram. Yeah. And so Shram sometimes would ask him, Hey, John, what do you, you know, where are you going? What are you doing all this for? And John said, Hey, listen, I'm going because I'm trying to raise awareness that there are um, uh, candidates of color who can fill these positions. And Tex would say, well, I'll support you because you're my friend. And I think you're doing a good thing. But listen, you know, the bottom line when it, when when an owner is deciding, you know, who they want to hire for a position is, you know, they would they should hire who they want to hire. And he said, listen, I'm going to hire who I want to hire. And um, John's response was, but that's the wrong question, Mr. Schramm. The question isn't who you want to hire. The question is who would be best for the job. Mm-hmm. And his, and his 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 point was, you're going to want to hire someone you know, and you're going to know people because they've been in your circle. But what you want to do, if you want to strengthen your team, you want to hire the person who's best for the job. And to get the person who's best for the job, you must necessarily expand the pool and think broadly about who you want to bring in. So Tech Schramm's perspective, I think, is pretty em- uh, um, emblematic of many at the time, which is I just want to get who I want to get. And I'm going to go in the circles that I'm in. Uh, to find that person. And John's point was, um, no, that, that's perpetuating the old boys' network. You don't mean to do so. You're supportive of my efforts to fly around and raise awareness. But in the end, what you're doing is hamstringing yourself, hamstringing your team, and keeping on the outside um, this, tradi- this group of folks who have traditionally been kept on the outside.
0: Mm-hmm. So, Jeremy, one of the, the heroes of your book is uh, Cyrus Mary, uh, the attorney yeah. who who drives the effort that leads to the to the Rooney rule in the nfl and uh, and you write that the spark for mary in in this effort was the firing of Tony Dungy from the head coaching job of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in two thousand and two so why did this, why did this spark such a strong reaction uh with Mary and, and what did he do to do about it?
1: okay so here's so it's really i mean it's an interesting story so a couple of things um resulted in it really really striking him um the first was that not you know, a few weeks earlier um if you recall dennis green was fired by the vikings and so in that during that same hiring cycle green was fired and green had he'd had a 15-1 season with the vikings um and you know dennis green also an african-american head coach he'd had a, he'd had a 15-1 season with the vikings he'd I think I mean, he had a ton of um, playoff appearances, and I think he was, a, if he wasn't the winningest coach in Viking, Viking hit, Vikings history, I think he was the second winningest. Whatever the case is, he had done really well. And his last season before he was fired, um, Corey Stringer, one of the team's most beloved players and one of its best players, offensive lineman, you may remember this, he died during training camp of heat stroke. And so the team was in turmoil, and it was just a tough year. And Cyrus thought, wow, this guy did a lot over the course of many years. He has this one down year. I think they finished six and ten, maybe. And it was a year that started out with this tragedy. He surely should have had more time. So that's the context in the background. Then a little bit after that, Tony Dungy's fired by um, the Buccaneers. And Dungy'd been with the Buccaneers for six years. He inherited um, a terrible Buccaneers team. So Dungy comes in. He, he turns the Buccaneers franchise around in six years, makes the playoffs a bunch of times, goes to the NFC Championship. On the, on the heels of two playoff um, appearances, he's fired. And this riled Cyrus Mary up. So why is he so riled up? Well, he's a huge NFL fan, and he sees what happened to the Vikings, what happened to Dennis Green and Tony Dungy, and that upsets him. But in addition to being a huge NFL fan, he really respected Tony Dungy's approach to coaching. He is a litigator. Um, Litigators are in a business um, of a lot of brashness and loud talking sometimes and intimidation, all that sort of stuff. But he always prided himself on being a level headed, calm uh, litigator who kept his composure and did best because of that. And he felt that Tony Dungy coached in the same way. So he had a real affinity for Tony Dungy. So there was that. And then finally, day in and day out, Cyrus Mary's legal practice was suing large corporations for employment discrimination, and he felt that he was seeing it in the National Football League. So he loved Tony Dungy's coaching style. He thought he was unfairly treated by the Bucs. This is on the heels of Dennis Green being, in his view, unfairly treated by the Vikings, and he spent all his days thinking about employment discrimination, and he figured he had to get involved.
0: And it was Cyrus Mary who then proposed this idea inside, of, uh, of uh, mandating Andy. interviews for, of candidates for, of color for head coaching jobs. And, um, and this was brought in from other professional fields, correct? And this is something that that had demonstrated success in, in other areas.
1: Absolutely. I should point out that Cyrus um, joined up with uh, the late Johnny Cochran. And it was the two of them who proposed this idea to the National Football League. And Cyrus was familiar. Cyrus proposed it to Johnny, and the two of them went to the league. They were friends. They'd been working together on cases for some years. Um, I should point out here, if I could, uh, Bruce, that although Johnny Cochran is generally um, uh, uh, viewed in most people's minds as O.J. Simpson's lawyer, mm-hmm. he really was much more than that. He was, in his heart, a civil rights lawyer, a plaintiff's lawyer, mm-hmm. um, and so he and Cyrus had worked on a few cases. At the time, they were working on a case uh, in which they were suing Johnson & Johnson for employment discrimination. Anyway, um, uh, so so the two of them made the proposal, and they made the proposal because, as you point out, they had seen this work in other regards, in particular – Cyrus had proposed this mechanism, this uh, de- described as the diverse candidate slate. When you're looking for someone for a particular position, you interview a diverse candidate slate, which is defined as including one uh, person of color. And when he settled cases with corporations, this was the case when he settled with Coca-Cola, for example, a large employment discrimination uh, case against Coca-Cola. Part of the settlement agreement was that in looking to hire uh, executives going forward, um, that Coca-Cola was obligated to utilize a diverse candidate slate, and Cyrus saw that working in Coca-Cola's context. And not only was it successful, but it was a means of trying to ensure, uh, ensure um, uh, equality of opportunity that didn't strike the nerve um, uh, in the way that uh, forms of affirmative action struck the nerves of folks who felt this was unfair, it's reverse discrimination, this sort of stuff um the the diverse candidate slate says hey listen you can interview five people 15 20 25 people as long as you interview one person of color which means that there is no person that's being disadvantaged by the inclusion of the person of color in the interview stage and by the way when you get to the hiring stage you need not consider color at all so he viewed it as a very benign process-oriented process-driven approach to increase in quali- uh, equality, um, opportunity in executive positions, he figured if it worked at Coke, maybe it'll work in the NFL. And so he and Johnny proposed it. Mm-hmm.
0: And the policy was adopted, and yes. uh, and of course it carries the name, the Rooney Rule, uh, in honor of the owner of the Pittsburgh Steelers, Dan Rooney. So so why did Rooney press this issue with his fellow owners?
1: Well, so it's interesting. So uh, when when uh, when uh, Cyrus and Johnny went to the National Football League. To the credit of the league, um, they did not, you know, and they and 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 Johnny Cochran threatened litigation on this. So I mean, the 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 the, the temperature was was pretty hot, um, but to the credit of the league, they did not just um, uh, you know circle the wagons and start defending what they thought would be a lawsuit. They got together. They recognized that there was a problem. Part of the reason they recognized that is that in the in the um, in the proposal that uh cyrus and johnny made to the league where they proposed a diverse candidate slate they also presented the league with uh statistics and the statistics did not lie and the nfl recognized that they were statistically significant and been peer-reviewed and everything and the statistics were these um, in the first year as an nfl head coach african-american head coaches won 2.7 more games than non-African-American head coaches. And remembering that we're talking about a 16-game regular season, Bruce, obviously 2.7 games. It's a lot of games, right? In mm-hmm. um, the year in which uh, a coach was fired, fired African-American coaches won 1.3 more games than fired non-African-American coaches. And overall, African-American coaches won over one more game per season than non-African-American coaches. And by the way, that was the ninth game. And over the course of those 15 Seasons that the, that the statistics were run, the University of Pennsylvania ran these statistics. A great labor economist named Janus Madden out of that university ran these statistics, 15 years. Over the course, course of those 15 years, 60% of teams with nine wins and seven losses made the playoffs. 10% of teams with eight wins and eight losses uh, made uh, the playoffs. And, that was that, and African-American coaches averaged out at just over nine wins a game, and non-African-Americans averaged out at eight wins a game. So it was pretty substantial stuff. And the league said, we're not arguing with this. We think your numbers are right. And moreover, we've kind of been trying to deal with this situation. They'd brought in consultants from uh, Russell Reynolds and other places to talk to owners about thinking more broadly about who they might um, hire. And they'd taken other measures to try to increase opportunity for those seeking head coaching positions, but nothing had really taken. So when the NFL saw this, Um, They kind of saw an opportunity for these outside um, folks to come in and offer a suggestion that might help the NFL to diversify, which the NFL was on its own seeking um, uh, to do. And so what they did, to get to your question about Mr. Rooney, is they set up, the league set up, a diversity workplace committee of owners. And Dan Rooney was on that committee, and Dan Rooney um, was the chair Of the committee and uh, as you know in National Football League it's the owners that come together and vote with respect to major policy changes the commissioner does not just throw out edicts the owners make the decision and so Dan Rooney uh, was a leading force among owners uh, with respect to talking to folks and trying to get some consensus around this idea that um, there should be diverse candidates late interviewing for NFL head coaching positions and ultimately all 32 owners made a a handshake agreement that they would interview a person of color for any head coach openings. Um, And so once that agreement was made, um, uh, Cyrus actually was asked by a reporter, you know, what, you know, know, the reporter said, hey, this agreement was made. This is huge. Um, It's, you know, it's going to be some sort of rule. What should we call it? Should we call it the, the, the Mary Cochran rule or should we call it the Cochran Mary rule? And Cyrus said, "No, it's called it the Rooney Rule. Mm-hmm. Rooney Rule. Uh, Dan Rooney was on the inside. He was um, uh, uh, making the moves there, and um, call it the Rooney Rule. He deserves it. And plus, it's more likely there'll be buy-in going forward in the NFL community if we call this the Rooney Rule, rather than naming it after some outside agitators." Mm-hmm.
0: So following up on that, I want to ask about uh, um, the league administration and and the commissioner. So uh, lately, NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell and and league officials have been getting a lot of bad press, particularly in regard to the issue of of brain damage in former players. But in in your research and looking at Goodell and and looking at the league office on the issue of coaching equality, what's your appraisal?
1: Um, I give them high marks. I, I give them high marks. I mean, I, starting with Commissioner Tagliabue, because it was Tagliabu mm-hmm. who um, really, you know, really was, I mean, Dan, Dan Rooney was talking to the owners, but Tagliabue was using the bully pulpit and pushing hard for reform. And then when, when uh, uh, Commissioner Goodell took over, he continued in that direction and became, and quite frankly, I think even more aggressive in terms of pursuing uh, uh, diversity. So I give them high marks in this regard, I think, as, as, as you've noted in this, um uh, as has been reported quite widely they tend to get lower marks when it comes to a lot of other um uh, uh areas of their business including of course uh the traumatic brain injury um discussions that are going on but with respect to diversity and you know i'd give them above well above average marks um, uh, which is which is interesting because, as you know, Bruce, the NFL has traditionally been a bit of a conservative league. Yeah, yeah. So for them to be at the forefront of the movement for equality in leadership positions in sports, I think was quite a um, quite a remarkable development.
0: Mm-hmm. So every year, Jeremy, there's this uh, revolving carousel of of coaches being fired by one team, hired by another team, and uh, and so now the dust has just settled from the most recent postseason run of hirings and firings. Are you are you satisfied that the Rooney Rule is is doing its work?
1: I think so. I think so. Um, it was le- you know it it, uh, it was less clear last. Hiring cycle. Last hiring cycle, there were 15, I believe, positions open general manager and head coach positions together. There were 15 of them, and none of them went to a person of color. And there seemed to be a fair number of them in which the interviews really were sham interviews, where there was no intent at all of really considering this person. Excuse me, which obviously violates the idea behind uh, the rule. You know, it's a tough rule to um, police because it deals with state of mind. The question is, did you really contemplate hiring this person? And, you know, there's no way to know that you can't get into someone else's mind. But last hiring cycle a year ago, there was a sense that there really was um, the rule kind of was flouted and disrespected Uh, this year. um, It was much more successful Uh, With respect to outcomes, Jim Caldwell got a job as a head coach, which he didn't get last year. Lovey Smith got a job as a head coach, which he didn't get um, last year. And more to the point, uh, the interviews were more closely monitored by the Fritz Pollard Alliance um, and by the National Football League. And it really seemed as though the interviews were genuine, Um, they weren't just for show. Uh, by the way, the Fritz Power lines interviews the interviewees hmm. after they 've come out of the interviews to get a sense as to what sorts of questions they were asked to get a and, as a uh, so that the Fritz Power lines can draw a conclusion as to whether the interviews were real meaningful, bona fide interviews, and they seem to be more so uh this year so this year's hiring cycle was quite satisfying uh, but overall, you know the you know the Rooney rule as i've indicated i mean you can' get around it by just you know, pretending that you're serious about the interview and not being serious. The hope is that in those situations, you go into an interview and you're not serious. You get a candidate who's so outstanding that candidate makes you serious. Um, uh, that's the you know that's the hope. Uh, but you know, there's some owners who just you know they know who they want and they're not going to think twice about it. So overall, the Rooney Rule I think has been successful. I will point out that I don't think that the Rooney Rule you know should be the only measure. Uh, In place uh, when it comes to trying to increase opportunity for these positions. You know, people criticize the Rooney rule, and often, and my response is, okay, there are weaknesses in it. It's not a perfect rule, but let's think, let's not just, you know, uh, throw salt on the rule. Let's think about what other means we can come up with that might result in um, uh, even better outcomes when it comes to uh, equal opportunity. So I think the fact that the Rooney rule is, for the most part, working is a good thing, but I don't think that should stop us from thinking of other ways to increase uh, opportunity and make a, create a level playing field uh, for coaching and general managing positions in the NFL. Mm-hmm.
0: I want to pick up with uh, what we talked about earlier, about the, the coaching ranks and the executive ranks being something of an old boys club. And, uh, and now, today, you see a lot of instances of, uh, of nepotism in coaching hires in the nfl and and it seems like this is a growing trend where where head coaches hire their sons or their brothers or their nephews for positions is is it the case that this is a, a growing perhaps even problematic trend and and what effect will this have on opportunities for african-american coaches
1: yeah so you know i, can, I don't have the stats to answer the question as to whether it's a growing trend it's cert- I mean, anecdotally it would seem to be i you know i, I can't say for sure Um, But I do think it's problematic. I think it's problematic in any industry. I think nepotism, um, you know, I mean, it works against meritocracy. You know, know, if it's the case that that individual, if not for being the son or nephew or niece or daughter of the decision maker, um, clearly had the qualifications to be a high level competitor for the, you know, for the position, that's fine. But often, you know, it's not the case. And so that is a problem generally. More of a problem, of course, when it comes to diversity because of the fact that, you know, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, there were so few people of color in the league and in our American institutions at high levels that when you look at the children of those who have the power in these institutions they're going to tend to be um, not of color because the people who have power in these institutions um, you know have tended to be not of color now a hundred years from now when you've got, you have know, you forget a hundred years from now you know 15 years from now when you have you know the sons of the children of tony dungy and marvin lewis and lovey smith um, you know, in middle age coming up for positions, then there'll be less of a disparate impact of this nepotistic approach. Still then, I would argue against nepotism totally. But if there is going to be nepotism, there'll, there'll be more equal racial opportunity nepotism then than there is now. But if you ask me, I think nepotism works against meritocracy generally and should really, really be strongly discouraged, if not prohibited. Mm-hmm. Jeremy, I know that you
0: also do research on uh, issues in college sports. And, uh, and here in college football, the, the lack of African-American coaches is, is apparent. And uh, just a few weeks ago, the, the University of Texas hired Charlie Strong as its first ever blackhead football coach. And, and of course, the Texas Longhorns are one of the great dynasties of college football. They have one of the top revenue-generating programs in all of college sports. And there were some donors who objected openly to the hiring of Charlie Strong. And, and one donor in particular, uh, the former NFL owner, Red McComb, said that Strong, Strong would probably make a good position coach or a good coordinator. But uh, as far as being a head coach, uh, McComb said, I don't think it adds up. So is is this the case of the same old stereotypes Um, preventing the hiring of black coaches in the college ranks? Or are there other barriers that are keeping African-American coaches out of the
1: top jobs in
0: college football?
1: Um, I think, I mean, you know, what Macomb said was, uh, you know, deeply offensive. And and so, I mean, Charlie Strong has, I mean, he's done everything he needs to do to get consideration for such a position. So in my view, that is exactly the same sense of, um, uh, uh, the same, the uh, uh, same old story. I mean, the same old boy situation creeping up again. And I, you know, I don't, I've never met Red McComb. I can't, you know, i am not, I don't know anything about him, anything about his character. And I don't seek to suggest that he's got a poor character. I don't seek to sh- suggest that he meant to say this in an offensive or insulting way, but what he said is offensive and it's insulting. And it's the same sort of perspective that has resulted in this glass ceiling for um uh, coaches of color in a professional and high level, uh, amateur sports. I think, you know, I think the thing about, uh, the, you know, one of the, 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 the I guess Red McCombs' statement is indicative of one of the, maybe you'd say it's systematic issues that face, um, the establishment of people of color at high level positions in, in collegiate sport. And that is that there are so many more stakeholders Yeah. Mm -hmm. um than there are in the national football league you've got the alums you've got the boosters um and and they have a lot of power and there are a lot of them and they tend to be older and Mm -hmm. um you know it's not a question of just convincing one person you convince one owner in the national football league and you're on your way to making change and there are more and more owners who are kind of you know new money owners who want to win they don't care about anything else and, um, but in the, in the college game you've got so many different folks um, and many of them are older and they grew up in a different generation and their views are entrenched whether consciously or otherwise and it's really hard nut to crack so um, Charlie hopefully is going to have an outstanding run um, uh, with uh, Texas and he shouldn't have to to do that to validate his his selection, but in the minds of many, including McCall, he'll, he'll have to.
0: So Jeremy, there has been talk of, of instituting something like the Rooney rule in English soccer. And I know that this is something that you've li- looked into the fact that, uh, black managers are very, very rare in the various leagues of, of English football. So, so would the Rooney rule or something like it be useful here or are there factors in English soccer that w- that would make its
1: application difficult? I think it would be useful. I mean, we've had Cyrus and I have had pretty substantial in-depth talks with the Professional Footballers Association over there, which is the union of all professional football or soccer, as we know the sport, um, players um, in the United Kingdom. And um, and the last conversation we had was during Super Bowl weekend. Uh, the deputy um, uh, executive director of the organization was here in, in New York, and so we met. we met with him and there's been you know there's been some progress in in this direction, so there are there are ninety two professional uh, soccer teams in the united kingdom you've got the Premier League, which we know about, and then three leagues below it and um you know there fluctuates between one and three um managers as they call them there um of color out of ninety two teams, and the playing base is probably about thirty five percent of color, so not as uh, a dramatic of a disparity or disproportionality, as we saw in the National Football League when there were 32 teams, um, and you know one head coach of color, and the playing population is 70 percent of color. Not quite that stark, but still pretty stark. Um, and so there was a so we so they like the so as a matter of law, there were were initially some questions as to whether, as a matter of law, this would be viewed as positive discrimination as they call it um that would be um unlawful but i think that the legal question is pretty much answered that a diverse candidate slate process where you're not dealing with the actual hiring you're just talking about interviews and again you're talking about just one uh interview for a person of color out of an unlimited number of total interviews so nobody in particular is being disadvantaged by the inclusion of that one uh, interviewee of color um I think it's pretty clear that as a legal matter, um, that such a policy would stand on strong footing. Um, the the problem is one of just getting traction. So, um, the, uh, the, there was a individual named uh, Greg Clark who was uh, the uh, basically the, the chair, the the commissioner, the, the the director of the league right underneath the Premier League, and he. Liked the idea, was all over it. Thought it would be a wonderful idea, and yeah, and and so all of us who were kind of pushing for it thought that maybe that would be a nice incubator uh, because the Premier League seemed less receptive initially to this idea. So maybe we incubate it at the, at the kind of B League level, which is just one league under the Premier League, and, um, and see what happens. Um, and so he decided he was going to carry the mantle there. But then um, last summer, for reasons completely unrelated to this issue, he received a vote of no confidence. Um, and now has essentially lost his power in his position, and so having nothing to do with this issue as a political matter, the the movement is kind of kind of um, flailing in the water because um, its strongest proponent has been has lost has lost his power. So all that is to say, um, I think it would work in the United Kingdom. Um, I think if it gets to the table and gets voted in, this rule gets voted in, I think it will work in the United Kingdom. But because its strongest advocate in the community right now um, has lost a lot of its power, um, there's a bit of a moment of regrouping to try to figure out how to push the idea uh, through other avenues. Jeremy,
0: right at the start of your book, We Are Not Finished in the Journey to Equal Opportunity in the NFL, and, as you look ahead, say say ten years from now, what would you like to see in in terms of uh equality of opportunity in the n f l
1: You know I think it's hard to you know i wouldn't put a particular number on it or percentage mm-hmm. on it um, in terms of the number of executives of color or coaches of color, excuse me percentages i no, that's I, you know, I don't think that um will get us where we need to be. Because um, so I think you could have you know, you could have fewer than 70% of the head coaches of color be, uh, or the head coaches in the league being of color. So you've still got some disproportionality between head coaches of color and players of, co- of color. And, and you could be in a great place. Um, uh, so I don't think it's percentages really. I think when you get to the place where you have – it's going to sound a little bit weird. But when you get to the place where you have ineffective coaches of color – Getting hired, getting fired, getting hired again, getting fired, getting hired again, then you're in a place where you have got, you know, where you're really seeing equal opportunity. Some people call it the, not to, not to, uh, to bag on, on the gentleman, but some people call it the Dennis Erickson effect. You know, he had a really questionable, <laughs> a questionable track record in the NFL, but he kept getting jobs. And so once you have people of color, who are not doing really well, but they get jobs again, then I think we'll be in a place where folks really are looking beyond color and, um, and, and hiring because, um, you know, they want the coach, regardless of skin color.
0: So, Jeremy, I'll ask you, we t- started out the, the interview talking about uh, what you were doing at the Combine. So, so I'll ask you about the work that you're doing now with the league and with the Fritz Pollard Association and, and also uh, what uh, research projects you have going on now.
1: So yeah, so um as I mentioned I continue to be counsel to the Fritz to the Fritz Pollard Alliance and we meet with the league a couple times a year um to and for a few reasons. And one thing that we every December we meet with the league and we talk about how the previous hiring cycle went, how things are going in the league generally when it comes to issues of diversity, um not just coaching but generally, and we provide the league with what we call a ready list, which is a list of individuals who the Fritz Pollard Alliance believes are ready for particular positions in the national football league. So head coach, offensive coordinator, defensive coordinator, uh, assistant head coach, president of a team, general manager. And so we present this to the league. So the league is always equipped with a list of individuals. When if if a a team were to come to it and say, Hey, well, we want to, Interview a person of color, but there no quali- you know, there's no qual—you know—there's just nobody with the qualifications out there for us to touch to interview. Um, the league now has a list of the folks that the Fritz Pollard recommends as being um, prepared for those uh, positions. So that's something we do with them every year. Um, and we raise other issues of concern. One issue of the concern that the Fritz Pollard Alliance is um, is advocating um, right now is the elimination of the N word on the football field. Um, as you may have seen in the newspaper, uh, the competition committee chaired by Ozzy Newsom right now is considering the issue um, of penalizing a person who uses a racial epithet on the football field with 15 yards and a second um, uh, such epithet would be uh, greeted with an expulsion from the game. And the idea is, um, and there's a huge amount of controversy about this, obviously people have different views of the word. Uh, my view, and the view of the Fritz Pollard Alliance, is that this is a word that was born in bigotry and oppression and subjugation, uh, ugly and demeaning word, and one that simply can't be cleansed. And rather than try to cleanse it, we should just um, uh, get rid of it. So that's what you know. You know what we're doing is the Fritz Pollard Alliance. My work with them is very gratifying work, very enjoyable work. Um, in terms of my uh, some of my other research, I've actually taken a move with a a piece that I'm just finishing up now, Bruce, away from uh, race and away from uh, football, and I'm exploring in basketball um, the age uh, eligibility thresholds in the WNBA and the NBA and asking why women have to wait four years out of high school to play in the WNBA where men have to wait only one year out of high school to play in the NBA and talking about the inequity that exists there the lost revenue, revenue that exists for these women, the lost endorsement opportunities, um, and basically the, you know, the potential that this is a, a, a civil rights violation.
0: You've been listening to an interview with Jeremy DeRue about his book, Advancing the Ball, Race, Reformation, and the Quest for Equal Coaching Opportunity in the NFL, published in 2011 by Oxford University Press. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects from philosophy to popular music. If you like what you heard here, please follow New Books and Sports on Twitter at New Books Sports or friend us on Facebook at facebook.com slash newbooksandsports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thank you for listening and enjoy your week.